My name is Stephen Elliott. I'm the pastor of High School Ministries here at Grace. Pastor John's away this morning. I'm grateful that he can get away and get some rest and relaxation, spend some, some well-deserved time with his family. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open up to Acts 11. We're going to be looking through Acts 11, 19 to 30. And uh, let me pray for us really quick while you... Will you turn there? God, what a privilege it is to come together, to be the church, uh, to, to open up your word this morning and to allow it to speak to us. I pray that that would happen this morning, Lord. I pray that you would speak and I pray that above all else that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted, that we would um, walk away this morning more inspired to be like your son, Jesus Christ that we would walk in closer step with you, that we would walk closer to one another. Um, God, would your word speak to us this morning? We pray in your name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at, at uh, really, I wouldn't say the perfect church. There is no, in, in, on this earth at this time, this side of eternity, there is no, no perfect church local community of believers. There is no uh, perfect local church, but I think that the church we're going to look at this morning is a, is a really good model of, of an ideal church. Um, I don't know if you—quick question. Who here has ever used YouTube videos to, like, fix something or to learn something, right? Like, what did we do before YouTube ever existed? How did we fix anything without taking it, like, for, except for you people who are just amazing like that and can just naturally fix things? Like, I hate you. Um, <laughs> I, like, I, I always tell people, like, I'm really good at breaking things. Don't ask me to come to your house and fix something. But if you want something broken, like, I'm right here. Um, but right before, before YouTube, how did we do that? But now that YouTube exists... We, we have this ability to, like, hold our phones up next to the thing that we're trying to fix, and we're like, oh, that's how it is. And especially for you, like me, I'm very much a visual person, and so I, I don't do well with reading. I mean, I don't read instructions anyway. But then when I finally give up, and I'm like, okay, I'll read the instructions. I read it, and I'm like, what? Are you, like, what part are you talking about? Then you watch the YouTube, and you're like, oh, I get it now. And I, I mean, this is... All sorts of things. Like a couple of weeks ago, I was I was changing my, the oil in, in Holly, my wife's car, and it, the oil filter is really funny. And I'm like, I've done it before, but I, so every time I'm under the car, I'm like, okay, I'll pull out the YouTube video and I pull it out, and I'm like, okay, now I got it, and I, no problem. Um, I even a few weeks ago, my microwave stopped working, and like the the things started would, wouldn't spin. And I'm like, shoot, gotta call a repairman. And then, then my sister suggested, she's like, well have you checked out YouTube? And I'm like, oh yeah, duh, of course. And so I, I go up to the, the microwave and I pull out a, you know, YouTube video and it's like, you know, what do you do if your, the motor on your microwave stops working? And the guy explained how to change it out. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, hmm, okay, I got to buy a part. And I just randomly, I'm like, well, let's try it one more time. And sure enough, the thing started spinning. And I'm like, YouTube is magic. Like, I didn't even have to do anything in it fixed my microwave. This is amazing. But we like we loved this. It's great because it gives us someone that knows what they're doing. And typically, I like to go with the you know. There's like, hey, this is Frank. You know, 
perfect, you know, plumbing repair, and I'm here to show you how to, you know, change out the, you know, whatever in your bath, in your, you know, toilet, and da-da-da-da-da, and you're like, okay, that's reliable. It's the one that's like, hey, hey, I'm doing my first YouTube video, and we're just going to try this thing out. Like, I don't typically trust those ones, you know. But someone that knows what they're doing, there's that visual example that you can look at it, and you're like, okay, that's how to do it. That's the way it's done. Well, this morning, I want us to look at what I would say is in many, many ways the model of, of how the local church should be conducting themselves, how the local church should be acting, um, what the local church should be prioritizing. And I want us, in a sense, to kind of look at the text and put us next to it and look at ways in which we can aspire to be, to be better, to be more in step with with this model and ultimately more in step with, with Jesus Christ and what he longs for his bride, the church, to, to be and to look like. <clears throat> um, before, we, before we dive into this text, I want to give you a little bit of background. Um, as, I, as I said, we're looking at the, the church of Antioch, and it's, uh, uh, it was, obviously we're in the New Testament, so it's one of the, one of the New Testament churches. I'm going to give you a little background to this text and a little bit of background to this church before we jump in, because I think that this, the context um, helps us understand the text a little bit better. <clears throat> um, this section in, as I said, in Acts is about the church in Antioch, and it kind of, Acts 7 ends with the martyrdom of Stephen. If you remember, the, the local church was the, the Jesus people, the community of believers. They were really in a sense, kind of pooled up in Jerusalem, and they were primarily, they, they weren't going far beyond Jerusalem, and they were really staying within the, they were primarily reaching out and sharing the gospel with, with fellow Jews. Um, then, and, and things are going well, but then, Acts 7, um, we, see the, we see that Stephen, the, um, one of the first early leaders in the Christian churches, is, um, is martyred. He's, he's stoned in front of a bunch of people, including the future uh, future apostle Paul. And then in Acts 8, um, it, it talks about how uh, the dam breaks, in a sense. Um, it says this, it says, and there arose on that day, this is Acts 8, 1, <clears throat> and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And in the next few chapters, it shows how the gospel kind of spreads out into the surrounding regions. Into Really, it's how it spreads over, over hundreds of miles. Um, and it really tracks the, the path. As I said, the, the dam kind of breaks and the, the pool starts to flood out. And it really tracks the, the, the four different people's ministries. Uh, number one, it tracks the, the ministry. Luke tracks the ministry of Philip. Uh, tracks part of the, the ministry of Peter, and he does some, uh, Jesus kind of, you know, speaks to Peter, and he calls him to share, start to share the gospel to the Gentiles. And so this, this section also shows how the, how the gospel goes beyond the Jews and how it goes to the Gentiles. So it tracks Peter. Um, it tracks, it tracks uh, the conversion of Saul and Saul's ministry. And the fourth channel in which, in which Luke tracks how the gospel goes beyond Jerusalem and to the Gentiles is through the church of Antioch. Antioch was a, a large city. Um, it, was, it was huge in this day and age. It was about 500,000 people. And if you think of where the Mediterranean Sea is at, it was kind of in the, in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea. It was, 
It was several hundred miles, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And Antioch was a very, very Roman, uh, Roman, in, it was, uh, in, you know, Roman through and through. Uh, there, was, there was a large Jewish, Jewish population in Antioch, um, but they had, they were very much a part of the Roman culture and all of the sins and promiscuity and everything that came with, that came with it. Um, Antioch has a, actually was, believe it or not, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Um, and in spite of all of that, uh, the Lord does an incredible work in the Antioch church. Um, and we're going to see that now. So, Acts eleven nineteen to 30. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, and that, was, that would be the non-Jews, the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the, came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them in all. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I want us to uh, look, if don't, don't close your Bibles yet, um, look at verse 23, kind of the very end of 22 and, and verse 23. I want us to pay particular attention to that text this morning, because I think it, it begs a, a critical question. It says, They sent Barnabas to Antioch when he came and saw the grace of God. I want us to think through the question, how do we see the grace of God. It's like when, like when Paul, or when, excuse me, when, when Barnabas shows up and sees, and, and shows up in Antioch, and he sees the grace of God, how does that, how does that work? What, it, what exactly is it that he sees? How do you see what the, how do you see, how do you see God's act of redemption, the grace of God in people's life? I think the answer is kind of like the classic example of the wind, right? We don't, specifically see the wind, but we, we see the effects of the wind. We feel the wind on us. Uh, we, see, we see what the wind is doing around us. Uh, we, see, we see the lack of its presence as well, and that like, huh, nothing is moving. Um, we also are capable of seeing like the long-term effects of the wind. If you've ever been out to the desert, you see that the, that the wind has literally 
shaped rocks over a long period of time. You see what the, the wind can do. If you've ever been in the high Sierra, you see these trees that are just naturally formed in one direction because of the, the long-standing presence of the wind. Um, and I think the grace of God is the same way, where we don't specifically see it, but we see its effects all around us. And so the question is, the question, how do we see the grace of God? What is what is the effects of the grace of God? Well, I think the answer is clear in this text. As you, as you read through the example, as you look at the model, I think we see that the answer to, like, what is the, how do we see physically around us the grace of God? I think the answer is generosity. We see examples of generosity all through this text. We see it, we see it in the church of Antioch. We see it in Barnabas as well. We see examples of generosity um, all through it. And I think it really shows what our, what our main point is this morning, the kind of the idea that I want to drive home. Uh, and this is your, if you're taking notes. And that is that abundant generosity is the evidence of deep felt grace. Abundant generosity. Like overflowing, freely joyful giving generosity is the evidence of deep-felt grace. It's not this, it's not this thing that, this, this ability in and of ourselves. This kind of generosity isn't just this, oh, they're just more, that's just part of their personality. They're just more, this just, they just got really lucky, and this whole church just happened to be, all the people who are just really naturally generous, that just happened to fall and, and go to the church in Antioch. That's not the case. This kind of, generosity is deep felt and it originates from the grace of God. It is, um, it only comes from deep felt grace. It can't be fabricated. It's the natural response of a life completely transformed by the amazing, merciful, and generous grace of God. I'm going to give us a, I want, I want us to, to see a, we're going to watch a video in just a second that I think is, is, a, is a great example of this life-transforming grace that results in generosity. Uh, if you've ever seen, maybe you've read the, maybe you've read the novel Les Miserables, or maybe you've seen one of the, the plays or the movies that they've put out or the musicals. I want to show us a clip from the movie Les Miserables. If you, if you haven't, give you a little background. It's, it, Les Mis follows uh, the, the life and the story of a guy named Jean Valjean, which I think is the coolest name, by the way. Um, and, and Jean Valjean has just been, uh, he's just gotten out of a 19-year prison sentence. Uh, he's an ex-convict, and it's, he's done 19 years of, of very hard, brutal labor. Um, and he sadly carries with him all the, the stigmas that come with being an ex-convict. And he tries to find, as he's, he's just been released, he's tr he tries to find lodging uh, in the city that he's in, and he doesn't, he doesn't find anything, and he's, he spends a night very bitter about it, and finally he's actually taken in um, by a very gracious bishop, Bishop Muriel. Um, and as, as Jean Valjean is staying with Bishop Muriel, he becomes aware of the fact that Bishop Muriel is in possession of some very, very expensive silverware. And that's where we uh, pick up this, this video, so go ahead and play that, guys. Great clip. I love that movie. It's, an, it's a great movie. It's a great play. What a great example, though, an illustration of, of God's crazy grace that he shows us. And I think, I think sometimes 
we fall into the camp of the, the I'm not that bad, but we, we forget that we stand, we stand absolutely guilty. I mean, we are caught red-handed with a knapsack full of, full of silverware, in a sense. We stand absolutely guilty before a perfect and a holy and a righteous God, and he has ransomed us. If we have given our life over to Jesus Christ, we've accepted that gift. He's, he's paid our ransom with his blood, and he, like, we are his, and he frees us, and he forgives us to be this new person, this, this completely new person. And so the, the message of this morning is not, hey, go out and just be a, a nicer, better, generous person. The, the message is recognize the incredible generosity which was shown to us on the cross. Recognize the, the unbelievable grace and what we now have in Jesus Christ and, and that we are this whole new person. We have, we have been bought, as, as the bishop says, our soul has been ransomed. We now belong to God and who this is and what that frees us to become. Again, as I said, this church in Antioch wasn't just this really nice, generous church. This was a, this was a church that felt the grace of God deeply, so much so that it overflowed and it was evident in everything that was seen and everything about them. And in the same way that we see, in the same way we see the deep felt evidence of God's grace in this text, I think it, it shows itself in four examples of generosity. And I want us to, to look at those this morning. I'm going to, uh, as we, as we kind of walk through this text, we're going to see four examples of, of incredible grace-filled generosity. And my hope, our encouragement this morning is that it inspires us to be more generous in these areas. And so, number one, if you're taking notes, we see that the church of Antioch was generous with the gospel. We see that the, the Antioch church was generous with the gospel. If you look at, at verses 19 to 22, you see that, you see that that, that kind of the, the pattern of the day in this time was really just to share the gospel with the Jews. But there was something different in the church in Antioch. They realized something that the other churches didn't see or weren't willing to cross that line. They were willing to go somewhere that the other churches weren't willing to go. And they, they realized that the gospel was for all nations. The gospel was to go, what Jesus said at the beginning of Acts, it was to go to every corner of the world. It was for everyone. And the church in Antioch was willing to do that. They were, they were generous with the gospel. It wasn't something that they were hoarding for themselves, but they wanted to share it with all people. And I think something that's important to realize, I think one, in, in all the, the other three examples of, of Paul's or where, where Luke is telling about where, where the gospel was going out to the Gentiles. He, he names this people specifically. Philip, uh, he talks about Saul converting to Paul, uh, and he talks about Peter. But with it, when it comes to the Antioch church, it's just a bunch of unnamed believers. They, it wasn't one particular person. And I think something else that's worth mentioning is that if you remember in, in Acts 8.1, it said that all the believers scattered except for the apostles— Everyone left Jerusalem except for the apostles. So that means the Antioch church was made up of just, just the laymen. And we say just the laymen. It wasn't the super disciples. It wasn't the first followers of Jesus that were outreaching the, the lost, that were out changing, going out to the non-Jews. It was, 
it was the John Doe's of the day, uh, the, you know, just the regular Christians who worked the blue-collar job, but, who's, but who were transformed by God's grace. They were the ones that were reaching beyond the Jewish lines, and they were reaching out to the lost Gentiles. They were the ones that were transforming um, one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire because they were generous with the gospel. And so, so prominently was the name Jesus Christ on their lips that the, the, the name of Christ was so commonly known about them that if you look in uh, Acts 20 or 1126, the, the last part of 26b, it says, and this is where we get our name Christians, it says they were first called Christians in Antioch. Um, it doesn't say specifically in the text where that originated from, but most, most would agree, most scholars believe, and it, from everything I've read, most everyone agrees that this originated from outside of the community of believers, that it was the non-Christians, it was the non-believers, the non-followers of Jesus, that assigned them that, that nickname. And it really is, it's the, the literal translation would be the Christ people, the people of the Messiah. Um, it, was, it was so commonly known that those are the people that represent Jesus. Those are the people that talk about this Christ. And they, they got a nickname from it because Jesus Christ was so often on their lips. They were generous with the gospel. And it doesn't stop there. It's not just relegated to just this text. We see just a few chapters later in Acts that they actually realize that even though they have people within Antioch that need to know about Jesus, there are other cities farther beyond the, in, in other parts of the Roman Empire that need to hear about Jesus as well. And so they actually commission Saul and Barnabas and Mark and send them out as the first, the very first commissioned Christian missionaries. And it's not the first time that they do that. All three of Paul's major missionary journeys in the book of Acts all originate and started with the Antioch church. Guys, this is a, a church that was passionate about sharing the gospel to the lost around them. They saw that the lost were desperately in need of salvation, and there is no other name by which someone can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. And they're not going to hear about it unless someone goes and tells them. And so they were passionate about sharing the gospel with the lost. They were generous with the gospel. We have to realize that our greatest resource is that we have the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet, this is far too often, this is the resource that we are so stingy with. This is the resource that we want to just hold so close and not let anyone know about it. But folks, there is a lost people out there, and, and we have the answer, and we can't be stingy with it. Uh, one of, the, one of my fa personal favorite, one of my personal favorite parables is in Mark 4, and it's the sower, it's the parable of the sower and the seed. And if you, if you read that, that parable, um, one of the, the things, and Jesus explains the, the meaning behind it, he explains that there's basically four kinds of hearts that the seed falls on. Um, but there's, there's also an, a deeper meaning within that parable that's important to realize as well. And, and one of the great truths of that parable, if you remember how it is, is that the sower sows the seed on the rocky soil and the soil that has thorns in it and the shallow soil and the good soil as well. But one of the, one of the truths of that text, though, as well, is that, is that the, the sower is generous with the seed. The sower doesn't, like, 
do an investigation and look at the, se- the soil and be like, oh, okay, I don't know if this is worth my time. I'll think about it like, no, the, the sower is just like, I've got to get as much seed out there as possible. I have to, like, I've got to empty my bag. You know, I've got to get this into to every corner as, as much as possible. And we have to have that same mentality. We have to be generous with the truth that God has given us, with the gospel. Questions to think through in this, on this, uh, in this section. Do we recognize the depth of God's grace as we were shown on the cross? Are we, do we see ourselves as that Jean Valjean, as someone who, who has been ransomed to God, someone who stands guilty? Or do we see ourselves as pretty good, you know, like, ah, you know, God, you're actually kind of lucky to get me. I'm really not so bad. Shouldn't that be... What we long to tell others about is that just as, just as Christ has transformed, has ransomed me, he can ransom you as well. Do we love Jesus Christ so much so that his name is always on our lips? Do we realize that the gospel is for everyone, that the gospel has to go to all corners of the globe, that everyone needs to hear about it? Another question. If our nickname if our nickname was determined by the community around us based on our actions and our conversations, what would that nickname be? Would we first be called Christians if, we were, if our actions and our words were determined by the outside community? Another example of generosity in this text is that, Bar- is that Barnabas was generous with encouragement. Barnabas was generous with encouragement. Barnabas, if you read earlier in Acts, actually wasn't even his real name. Barnabas was his nickname. Barnabas was, was the, uh, the translation is son of encouragement. Uh, I've actually, I, when John preached about Barnabas years ago, he actually used the phrase Mr. Encouragement, which I, I loved. I always like that and think about that when I think of Barnabas. But Barnabas was, was literally Mr. Encouragement. And he lives up to his nickname here. He sees the great things that God is doing in the Antioch church, and he is thrilled about it. He is so glad that he is able to to see the action, see the grace of God at work. I think this says a few things about Barnabas. First of all, um, I think think the fact that he saw the grace of God is very telling about Barnabas, because you see that as I said, this wasn't the, the perfect church. There, there is no perfect church. So Barnabas easily could have walked into the church and started nitpicking. He easily could have walked in and started seeing all the things that were wrong. You know, he could have, he could have picked apart like, oh, the, their songs aren't the songs we're singing. Or, you know, they're, they're doing things differently. He could have, uh, you know, he could have been, been stingy about it. He could have, he could have seen, he could, he could have, he could have saw, seen the flaws in the church, but he chose not to do that. Instead, he chose to see the grace of God and was glad about it. He didn't think, you know, oh, my, my church is better than them in this area. Or, you know, sometimes, you know, jealousy creeps in and be like, oh, you know, where we kind of almost get glad when we see another church struggling because it somehow, like, makes us feel better about our own church. There was, there was none of that with Barnabas. He had, a, he, he had this, we're all in this together, this kingdom mindset. And we saw the grace of God. He was glad about it. And then he took time to encourage them. The, the, the word here is exhort them. And this kind of encouragement, this exhortation, isn't this, 
you know, this like, hey, way to go, guys, you're all winners. Uh, this isn't this like, you know, phony, you know, just like, ah, uh, you know, good, good job, church, way to go. No, this is, this is encouragement with purpose. Uh, the, the, the kind of, when I think of this, when I think of what exhortation is, I think of the, the coach, if you've seen, if, if your kids are in sports, you, you see this, um, where that, that coach is like cheering the team on, but with purpose. They're, they're shouting instructions from the sideline. They're cheering them on when they're doing good. They're giving them direction. Um, I, I raced uh, in swimming. I, I did swimming, which I, I don't know if race is the best. You know, I, I, was, I was in there for the social side of things. I wasn't so competitive when I was a kid. But I remember, like, I could hear my coach's voice. You know, when I would come up for a breath, I could, I could hear my, and out of all the shouting, you could always, you, you know your coach's voice, and you hear it, and it spurs you on and encourages you. Um, and this is like what Barnabas is doing. He is inspiring the church. He's exhorting them. He is saying, like, you guys are doing great. Continue doing what you're doing. Continue in the purpose. Continue in the goal. Continue in the direction that you are going. Don't stop. Don't, don't rest on your laurels, in a sense. Um, but keep going in that direction. And this is what we need to be like as well. We need to be a community that is generous with this exhortation, generous with this kind of encouragement. We need to, we need to look for people around us to encourage. Questions for this in this, in this area. Um, and by the way, I... Uh, anyway, sorry, I'm getting, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, I'm so excited about this. Question, questions for this. Um, how do you handle the success of another? When you see success somewhere else, like Barnabas saw success in Antioch, do you, are you thrilled about it? Do you get excited when you see God working in someone else's life, in some other church, in some other ministry? Are you thrilled that God, just as he is working in your heart and in mine, that he is working somewhere else too? And then how generous are you with your encouragement and your exhortation? Um, do you just look for the flaws? Do you just look for the things that, that people aren't doing right? Maybe even your own kids? Are you just looking for the areas where they're where they're messing up because you feel like you need to always be correcting them. And I'm not saying that that's not the case, that you don't need to be doing that. But how are you in exhortation? This takes time, by the way. Barnabas didn't just show up and he's like, yeah, looks good to me. See you guys later. No, no, he took time to speak to them. They were already doing great things, but he still took time to speak to them. And then it says he spent a whole year with them, uh, with the Apostle Paul. It takes time. This means that you need to schedule time out of your day to have coffee with that, port, that person just for the sake of encouraging him, just to pull him aside and say, hey, you, I see what you're doing. You are doing a great job. Keep doing that. How can I continue to help you? How can I be praying for you even more? This, makes, this means that maybe you need to sign up to be a Sunday school teacher or something like that to, to where we, we need to realize that this isn't like being a Sunday school teacher and serving, being in Awanas. That's not just being a child care worker. That is, that is exhortation of the next generation. This takes time. It takes dedication. It takes our heart. It is encouragement with purpose. Guys, we need to be like that coach that is spurring on the next generation saying, keep doing what you are doing. You are going in the right direction, and I am here with you. So we need to be generous with our encouragement. Thirdly, Barnabas was generous with his ministry. Barnabas was generous with his ministry. 
he saw, the, I mean, the church is like exploding. It is busting at the seams. And what does Barnabas do? He takes time and he travels to Tarsus and he seeks out and tracks down the Apostle Paul. And, Barnabas, and, 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 and Tarsus was like 100 miles away. It's not like, oh, I'll just, I'll be right back. I'll be back by dinner. I'm going to run over to the neighboring city, grab this guy really quick, and I'll be right back. Uh, this, this took time out of Barnabas' schedule, but he realized that it was worth it, that the ministry was growing, and he needed to bring other people into the mix. And he gets one of the best people for it. And if you, as you continue to read through Acts, you'll realize that, that, that Barnabas and, and Paul actually had, in many ways, very kind of different personalities. They had many different and strengths and weaknesses. They really complemented one another. But this says a lot about Barnabas and that he wasn't willing to, or that, that he was willing to get someone that was different than him and who ultimately, as you continue to read through Acts, eclipsed his own ministry. Um, as, as Acts continues, Barnabas really starts to fade into the background, and Saul starts to, Saul, Paul starts to come forward as one of the, the key figures. Um, that says something about Barnabas, is that he was willing to, he was willing to step into the background. He was willing to, to make himself number two. He wasn't willing to, he wasn't just going to go get, he's like, man, I really, you know, our ministry's grown. I really need someone that'll fetch my coffee and empty my trash. So let's go get, you know, someone, I mean, he got someone that was in many ways, um, in some ways more gifted and talented than him. And that's okay because Barnabas was generous with his ministry because he ultimately realized his ministry wasn't even a thing. There is no such thing as my ministry, my church, my youth group you know, my, my R group, that, that doesn't exist. It is, it is the Lord's R group that he has put us in oversight of, that he has allowed us to shepherd. What does Jesus say to Peter right before in John 21? He says, you feed my sheep, you tend to my lambs. And Barnabas has this same mindset that like, this isn't, this isn't my church. This is the Lord's church. And how can we make it better? Who can I be bringing on to better disciple this growing church. And folks, we need to be asking ourselves that same question. Number one, what areas of ministry does God have you in? Where has God placed you? And who are you bringing around you? Who are you discipling? Who are you raising up to ultimately maybe even take over that ministry? Who are you caring for in a way of saying like, okay, I'm going to start putting you out in front. I'm going to start stepping back. Are we willing to do that? Or do we have such a tight grip on our ministry that we're not letting to, sh we're not allowing someone else to have control. We're not sharing it with others. And like, dare I say, maybe even do it better, do it differently. Maybe be willing to, to make a mistake in it. Where are we sharing our ministry? Where are we being generous? We need to not be stingy with our, with our ministries. And to you young people, I was thinking about this, the, the flip side of the coin is, is, is just as true. You younger people, are you like hands off saying, oh no, no, that's, that's kind of their thing. They're like, they're like the patriarch of that. Like that ministry is like they are connected with that ministry. Like I don't want to touch that. Are we looking, you, you younger people, are we looking for areas where we can step up, where we can be involved, where we can come alongside that saint who has been faithful for decades in that ministry and maybe, maybe help them out, maybe encourage them in some ways? I think, as I said, I think both sides of the coin are true. And lastly, the Antioch church was generous with their resources. 
The Antioch church was generous with their resources. I think this is oftentimes, when we think of the word generosity, I think we often think money. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. We see it right here in the text in the last section of Acts, uh, Acts 11. But I think we need to see that generosity, this grace-filled generosity, is so much more than that. But we do see it here. The, the church was generous with their resources. The church in Antioch hears about this famine that's coming they, through, through the Spirit um, and through, through prophets that the Spirit speaks to. They are told that there is going to be a famine coming. And what do they do? They start digging bunkers. They start, like, stockpiling MREs and canning food, right? They start, like, investing in gold and, you know, stockpiling weapons and everything. No, they don't do that. The first thing they do when they hear about this famine that's not just going to hit— that's going to hit them just as much as some of the other churches. What do they do? They take a collection. They take up an offering. Instead of thinking, okay, how are we going to protect ours? They start thinking— other churches are going to be hurting because of this. How can we help them? How can we serve them? And then, after they take this offering, they send it with Saul and Barnabas. They, spend, they send it with, like, their best leaders and their spiritual leaders. And it, it's not like, all right, we're going to just transfer money. The, the, they send it hundreds of miles away. So they say, okay, we are going to go without. Not only without, our, like, some of our physical you know, needs being met and some of our physical comforts, but we're going to go with some of our spiritual leaders being gone for a significant amount of time. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to step up our game. They gave their first and their best to other people and to other churches. They were generous with their resources. I thought of a, a perfect example. Think of like the, the churches in Thousand Oaks that have just been hit by by shootings and by, by fires and devastation. Think of like the churches of Thousand Oaks, if they all got together and say, okay, we're going to take up a collection and we're going to send it of, of stuff and we're going to send it with our best people and our strongest men and we're going to send it up to the churches that have been devastated in paradise. That's, that's the exact same kind of thing that's, that's going on here. So questions for us. Where do we need to give like this? In hard times, when hard times hit, do we think, how can I protect my own? Or do we think, who is going to hurt worse than me, and how can I help? Last thing I want to encourage with you before we close is that grace-fueled, this kind of grace-fueled generosity must be intentional. It must be, must be purposeful and intentional. The church in Antioch intentionally shared the gospel with the Greeks. They didn't, like, start talking to me like, oh, shoot, I didn't realize you weren't Jewish. Like, okay, forget everything I said. Oh, shoot, now they gave their life to the Lord. What's going to happen? That, that wasn't the case. They, they realized what they were doing. They were intentional about who they were sharing the gospel with. Barnabas spoke purposeful, intentional encouragement to the church. Barnabas looked intentionally for Saul. Did you know the word that, that Luke uses here in Acts when it says Saul or uh, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul? It's the exact same word that he uses in the Gospel of Luke when it talks about Mary and Joseph when they, when they went to Jerusalem and then they left and they realized that Jesus wasn't with them as a young man when Jesus was a teenager. It says they, look, they went back to Jerusalem searching for him, looking for him. It's just, it's just like, like they hunted for him. Barnabas was looking intently for Saul. 
He was purposeful in it. And the whole church was purposeful and intentional in taking up a collection and giving their best to other churches. Generosity will increase, folks. Generosity will increase more and more as we give thought, purposeful, intentional thought, to the grace which we owe to Jesus, the, the grace that Jesus Christ showed us and the debt that we owe to his holiness. Because abundant generosity only comes from deep-felt grace. Let me pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. Father, you are so good. You are so gracious. You are so generous with us. Lord, as we go forward, would, would that fuel us to be more generous in all of these areas with those around us? Lord, would you do it, such a work in our heart that, that, it, that we can't help but talk about what you are doing in our lives, that we can't help but give? God, would you, ch- would you change and transform our hearts with that kind of grace? Lord, we love you so much. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you, folks. You're dismissed.